0: Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Last week we had finished up with this. Went through the Chalcedonian box. So as promised, I did print it out. So if you want to pass it around. And actually today in church history, the Council of Chalcedon meets October 8th, 451. So that is today's today in church history. Today, my goal is to finish up the early church and then um, start the medieval Middle Ages church. And I hope to do that over a course of two weeks. And I will cover about 1,000 years of history in about two weeks. So I will try to do it thematically and, um, again, at a very overall high view. So, before I begin, let me just pray for us, and we will get started. Lord, we thank you for uh, this day, this morning. Um, I echo uh, Heather's prayer. Uh, with talking about transitions, as we discuss transitions uh, this morning. The church moving from the early stages to the middle church, and how things began to change for good or for bad. Uh, Things changed, but the main point still stands, Lord, that you are the one who doesn't change and are still in control of all things. Uh, Help us to remember that as we go through today and the rest of the week and gather again next week. Um, Lord, we ask that you be with us this morning in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning we look at probably one of, if not the most, influential theologian in church history. Uh, Augustine. Hey, Ben, can you turn down some of the lights just a little bit, please? Thanks. Um, So, Augustine, born in 351. So, he was a student and teacher of rhetoric. He was born in North Africa. His father worked for the government and was a pagan. His mother, however, was a Christian. Um, And I gave a shorter version of this over the summer so if you were there for the summer some of this would be old hat for those who weren't there this will be new and you will learn about um, why Augustine is so important when he was 17 he was sent to Carthage to study he did not neglect his studies but he indulged everything the city had to offer especially women he had a woman living with him and they had a son she would stay with him for 15 years All students of his day to be successful had to study rhetoric. Rhetoric was the art of writing and speaking in a convincing way. So truth wasn't as important as the ability to speak nicely and to convince people of your arguments, whether the arguments were true or not. Could I make a lawyer joke there? No. (laughs) saw Nathan walk in, I was like... um, So, it was more important to speak convincingly. Augustine began to study the master of rhetoric, Cicero. While reading Cicero. Augustine was convinced that rhetoric without truth could make him rich, but his life would end in misery. So, he needed to search for truth above rhetoric. So, Augustine fell in with a group called the Manichees. The Manichees... um, espoused Manichaeism, it was a Persian adaptation of Christianity, which added in Gnosticism, Zoroastrianism, speculative philosophy, and superstition. In each human there were two principles, light and dark. The dark has been fighting to defeat the light. And then everything from the waist down is part of darkness, everything from the waist up is part of the kingdom of light. So again, there's some dualism here again. but for Augustine, this was the truth he was looking for. Um, salvation consists in separating these two elements and in preparing our spirit for its return to the realm of pure light. According to their beliefs, um, this doctrine had been revealed in various fashions to a long series of prophets, including Buddha, Zoroaster, uh, and Jesus, and the start of this uh, movement, manni. Manichaeism was the belief system of the intelligent, thus that would attract Augustine. They ridiculed the scriptures, the Bible. Um, His mother, Monica, had always told him there was one God, but Augustine wanted to know if there was a God, why did he allow or create evil? So this is Augustine's intellectual problem he's struggling with right now. In Manichaeism, Augustine found a worldview where evil was equal opposite to light. Monica, Augustine's mother, was so opposed to Augustine becoming a Manichae that he was not allowed in her house. She was very distraught over this and his indulgent lifestyle, which despite the Manichae's teaching forbidding it, he did not give up. So he's also living inconsistently with this new view that he's quote-unquote espousing. Over time, though, Augustine would start to have doubts about Manichaeism and eventually would give it up. At the age of 30, he moved to Milan in Italy, for a teaching position in rhetoric. Eventually he came to a teaching that said evil exists but is not a thing in itself. It is a direction away from the goodness of of truth. So evil is a perversion of goodness. It's not a thing in itself. And so he would kind of latch onto that a little bit. Um, For Augustine, this would be a huge step in overcoming his obstacles to Christianity, but he still believed the Bible was crude With sloppy rhetoric. All right, so Augustine is struggling with evil. How could there be evil if there's a good God? Um, He's also struggling with uh, his notions of beauty and truth, and that to him the scriptures don't contain that. And if the the scriptures don't contain beauty and truth, then how can God be true? Because don't wouldn't a, a beautiful and true God write something beautiful and true? So he's struggling with this in his own mindset. Um, While in Milan, Monica convinced her son to go listen to Ambrose, the bishop of Milan. And he was considered the greatest speaker of the day. Um, I think they called him the Golden Mouth, if I remember correctly. So obviously, Augustine was attracted to this, a great speaker, a person of great rhetoric. So of course he would want to go and hear what he has to say. Maybe he could learn something and become a great speaker himself. So he goes to hear Ambrose. and when he gets to go and hear him, he's only caring about how Ambrose spoke, not ex- not what he was saying. Again, rhetoric without really caring about truth. Through Ambrose, however, Augustine began to see that the Bible was not so crude after all. All of his intellectual objections to Christianity are now crumbling before his eyes. So Ambrose, a great speaker, could portray the truths and beauty of the Scriptures through his preaching and Augustine would start to receive this and start to say, well, maybe, maybe there is something to this Christianity. Um, he decided if he were to accept his mother's faith, he would go all in. He would give up rhetoric and his immoral lifestyle. But for Augustine, it was not so easy. He used to pray, God, give me chastity, but not yet. At this point, Augustine was in deep struggle over his sin. He knew he must repent and give it up, but he couldn't quite do it. He says he wanted to love God, but he still loved his own lusts. His struggle becomes so intense while sitting in a courtyard, he throws himself into the ground, and he yells, How long, O oh Lord? And then here is his account, which eventually would be the account of his conversion. I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart, when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the the neighboring house, chanting over and over, Tole lege, tole lege, take up and read, take up and read. I wanted to... Uh, so, he would open the Scriptures and read Romans thirteen, thirteen, a passage that speaks directly to the sin that Augustine was struggling with, but that he could not seem to escape from. He says, I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to, for instantly, as the sentence ended... There was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away." So in his account of his conversion, which is in the book Confessions, it's about that thick, um, he attributes his salvation in part to his mother's constant prayers. So Augustine was wayward for most of his uh, young life, Um, had strong connections with his mother, not very strong connections with his father, Um, loved his mother dearly, but not enough to give up his lifestyle that actually would hurt her. In some cases, uh, before he left, I think to go to Milan, she asked him to come over in the morning for something. He didn't want to tell her that he was leaving and just went ahead and left without telling her. And she found out later that he went to Milan. So he deeply hurt his mom, but she never stopped praying for him. and Augustine attributes his salvation to Monica's prayers. So what I did last time in the summer, and I'll do again now, is there any one in your family or friends that we can pray for, right now?
1: My two sons, but they're not important. My stepbrother. My brother. My sister. My sister.
0: So why don't we just take two or three minutes, two or three of us, just to pray for all these people that we are asking to come to the Lord. So if someone would start, and then I can close us, and then we can continue on.
1: These people are, are in our lives because of this, us here, and then there. So the first thing that you were sovereign, you were Lord. Uh, because you've done this, we ask you that you would save them, that you would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and have their lives transformed and taste sweet through of. In the Father, uh, these people are typically people that we have known more than other people in our lives. They're very close to us, and yet we find ourselves at a loss of words of how we relate your word and your truth to them. It's a struggle, Lord, and we just uh, we pray for them. We also pray for us that we might be given through you the words, the understanding, the listening hearts, the patience.
0: Lord, we ask that you would save uh, all these people that we are praying for, that you would bring them into your kingdom for your glory. We pray that our prayers for them would never stop, even if it seems like uh, our prayers aren't being answered. Um, We we pray... uh, that they would come into the kingdom. Lord, we thank you for Monica, Augustine's mother, the example she sets for constantly praying for her son. And even Augustine recognized that his salvation um, was in part an answer to her prayers. Lord, we pray we would have the fortitude to do so and pray for our family members and friends who do not know you now. And Lord, we ask that they would come into your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so... Um, Continue on, Augustine, he would resign from his teaching position in Milan. Um, he would get baptized along with his son. However, a short time later, his mother would die, which would cause him intense grief, and very soon after that, his son would die. So, um, thankfully, Monica did see her son come to faith, but then uh, Augustine himself would experience intense grief with death of his family members. Um, Eventually, Augustine became to be recognized as uh, a good writer, uh, defensive Christianity, explaining things um, um, that people needed to hear, and people started to recognize that, and um, he moved back to Africa, where he was from, and then eventually he would become the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. He wrote so much and is so influential on the church Um, It would take years to go through everything he wrote, and so I want to just show a couple of things why he is so important to the church today. Um, He wrote against the Manichees, which he was formerly a part of, showing how the worldview could not hold up and was incompatible with Christianity and truth. Um, His Confessions was an autobiography of his life, and some historians say is perhaps the first autobiography ever written. Um, but perhaps his most well-known writings were against um, Pelagius and dealing with the Pelagian controversy. So, some background. Pelagius, he was a monk from Britain who was famous for his piety. He was teaching that sin was not spread to all humans by the fall of Adam, but that sin was a result of ignorance of what is right, and that sin is learned by example. Therefore, he claimed that humans could live a sinless life. He believed that humans are free to act righteously. He saw no need for an outside influence. In short, he saw no need for the grace of God. Plagius saw the Christian life as a constant effort through which one's sins could be overcome and salvation achieved. Plagius was termed a Christian moralist. He was concerned deeply with promoting strong moral attitudes and living a upright life, but had no concern for the role of God and His grace in actually achieving such things. Um, and so where do we hear some of this talk today, that we can be good people? No, Catholicism? <laughs> Catholicism? The difference, though, is they would espouse the need for grace. Pelagius said, no, we don't need grace.
1: Or even repentance. Well, uh, I think popular culture Mm -hmm. pumps pumps this continuously to children and to all aspects of society. It's the the opposite of what I think we believe. That we're all broken, we're all sinful, we're all grace. And I think proper culture says, you can be what you want to be. All people are basically good. All of those things. There's a common phrase, you are enough. You are worthy. These are phrases I see a lot on Facebook. People quote and say. A humanism type almost it's everywhere. Yeah. Another one was like that people believe is that you just do good deeds you your whole life you will
0: happen. So the, the underlying view has not gone away. So it's still around. So how did Augustine deal with this? Well first off he remembered his own struggle with sin that inside of himself he said he wanted to stop, but he didn't. And so he felt he he couldn't stop. He couldn't do it on his own. And so he would start there in his refutation of Pelagius. Um, Pelagius viewed salvation as a life preserver. He believed you needed help with your sin. You could grab the preserver. if It was there if you needed it. Augustine said we can't grab the life preserver because we are a dead corpse floating face down in the water. The only way we could be saved is if God jumps in, drags the person to the shore, and brings them back to life. He believed this because he believed that the fall of Adam has so corrupted all of man that all man could do is sin. The only thing we could choose is the thing we wanted most, which was sin. We could not choose God unless his grace intervened in our lives and made us spiritually alive. So here's how Augustine would refute it. No one could provide the moral effort to save themselves because all are dead in sin. Um, Pleiades viewed his life. Salvation is a life preserver. Augustine said, we cannot grab the life preserver, and the only way we'd be saved if God jumps in and drags us back to life, that would be God's grace intervening in our lives. We are so corrupted that we cannot choose God on our own volition. We don't want to. We are dead. And so God's grace comes in, makes us alive, makes us a new creation, and then we are able to choose and accept God. So that's, that's the high overview. The debate went on for a little bit, um, eventually uh, Augustine would win out, Plagius' view would be rejected, um, although Augustine's view wasn't fully, truly, fully accepted, where we are completely dead and God comes down and makes us um, alive. Um, um, there's kind of a middle way, which I don't want to get into, which the Roman Church would eventually espouse, that there is some effort in our part to come to and accept God. but. Uh, Basically, the point Augustine is saying is that we are completely dead in sin because of the fall, and that we need someone to come in and make us alive and accept, um, or make us alive, and therefore then we can accept God and live accordingly and to to how the scriptures tell us to live. We cannot do it on our own effort. Um, So, obviously, um, a lot of Protestants will accept this today, Reformed accept it. Um, The Roman Church does not, the Eastern Orthodox does not. They reject Augustine's view. Um, We also see in Augustine um, the legal aspect of the gospel, where Christ paid for our sins. We start to see that get developed a little bit more, and that'll come into play with um, how we look at the medieval church, which we'll get to in just a second. But we need to look at Augustine's impact. Um, So he gave us a reflection on how to think and talk about God His doctrine of man as sinner who is in need of radical grace is central to understanding the Scriptures, that God comes down in our story. He's done everything for us, and He saves us. We don't save ourselves. And then Augustine is considered the doctrine of grace because he so emphasized the need for God's grace in our lives. So that's his major um, impact. Um, This grace of God, it transforms our hearts that effectively moves us to obey God for salvation and therefore we need not be worried and distraught if we have to depend upon God, because it's God who saves us, it's God who upholds us, and it's God who carries us through through our life. And so um, Augustine would um, really, really emphasize grace and begin to change how the church viewed grace and the relationship of people to Christ. And then lots of debates would come after that, and some of the splits that we see would be a result of um, how we understand grace. And that's pretty much what the Reformation was fighting about. How do we understand grace and what role do we or we not have in the role of our salvation? So I want to conclude with this um, famous statement from Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. What do you guys think the statement means?
1: And we're pretty much sinful until we find peace in God. God wired us in his image. This in his image thing, I ponder a lot later it because it, it goes beyond a visual reference. It means that we are wired to think and to uh, have the ability to see into the future, to see into the past, to think about things in a way that only God thinks like that. In other words, all created creatures we don't believe, most created creatures have that ability. And, and ha- having said that, we all are hungry and seeking something, and we fill it with, we as humans, fill it with all kinds of stuff. You know? and, and the only true fulfillment is God himself. And, and we seek Him but we don't often recognize that. It's like it's in our subconscious and we hunger for that and we, you know. It, I, I mean, I can echo parts of that. I, I mean, I think we're clearly made to be in relation with God. Um, and I think that is primarily what that's about, that you won't be satisfied but for that relationship. And therefore, until you find that, you will find no rest. I, th- I think there are implications of that that we would disagree about, but I'll drop it there.
0: If so you look at Augustine's life himself, he's, he was searching for truth. He was searching for beauty. When he realized his lifestyle was immoral, he was searching for a way to deal with it. And it wasn't until he actually read the scriptures and God changed his heart that all these, these struggles coalesced into God himself. And God was the solution for the struggles. So the statement's coming out of his own life, but obviously it applies to all of us because we've been made to worship God. And if he is not our final and full satisfaction, we're going to be like little children crying that we didn't get our candy. So that's Augustine's impact. I did that in 15 minutes. It should really go, if you get a chance, to read his Confessions or his City of God, um, which deals with... City of God deals with... um, the charge that Christianity was crumbling the Roman Empire, and basically Augustine refutes that and says, well, there's a city of man or there's a city of God. Uh, the city of man is uh, temporal, it's going to die anyways, but the city of God will last forever and ever. This also had an impact on the church and its understanding of God's kingdom, and some would take this too far and relate it to to uh, Temporal matters were also as important as spiritual matters when it comes to political power and political gain. But those are his two main works, the Confessions and the City of God. They're both in the library. Please check them out. The Medieval Church. See how much I get through. This is a, I want you to think of it as an 1,000 year or so experiment in building a Christian civilization. So just keep that in the back of your mind. That's kind of the theme I'm running with, all right? Um, There are many things that we could cover in the Medieval Church. Um, A lot of times, as Protestants, we could just want to skip over them, get straight to the Reformation. So I don't want to do that, I want to spend a little bit of time on it, because it also sets the stage for the Reformation and some of the problems that arise within the Church and why the Reformers did what they had to do. All right, so up until this point in history, the Church has been relatively been one unified great Church. We did have churches in what I'm calling the West and the East, Rome and Italy and Constantinople. Right. Eventually, though, there would be two branches of the church, so I want to talk about how we got there, see if I can do it. Um, so, Constantine had moved the empire's capital to the east in Constantinople. This left the west, while still under the authority of the emperor in the east, basically to fend for themselves. The west in Rome herself began to decay. The city was sacked in 410 and 455. It eventually fall in 476. Um, scholars put this date as the collapse of the Western Roman Empire Um, and so the West would collapse. The Germanic tribes were coming in from the north and would take over the area and the area of Italy would never really be uh, united again as it was in the West at at this point in time for quite about. So the church would actually step in. There was a political uh, vacuum and so um, people were looking to What do we do about the vandals? What do we do about the barbarians coming in? How do we deal with this? There's no power really to protect us. And the church, I wouldn't say they stepped in with ill intent, but they saw their as trying to protect the flock. And so people started to naturally turn toward the church for help. One example of this around 450, one of the most feared men on the planet, Attila the Hun is on his way to Rome. His army, consisting of more of 300,000 soldiers, seeks to destroy everything. As Attila nears Rome, an interesting strategy develops. Instead of sending out the army, people say, Let's set out, send out our head pastor, Leo, and see if he can get Attila to forget about destroying Rome. Leo goes out and meets Attila the Hun, and Attila remarkably turns back his army and does not attack Rome. Leo returned Rome to Rome a hero, and people began to start... Now, just look to the church as their quote-unquote savior. The church, over a slow period of time, would do its duties in taking care of the poor and the needy, and people would eventually look to the church for governing purposes as well. There was really no emperor or ruling authority here, even though they're technically under the emperor in the East, but, you know, he's like, he's like way in Washington, D.C. We don't care what he, he does. He can't help us anyways. We're going to do our own thing. Um, <clears throat> there was a genuine need that the church began to fill, And the spiritual matters of the church began to overflow into temporal matters. Because of this, the church began to gain power and influence over the area. And the church would begin to actually rule over large areas of Italy. And then we get, so that's going on in the west, and we shift to the east. In the east, we have Emperor Justinian, who would reign from 427 to 465. Um, So he's in the east. He sees Italy is kind of doing their own thing and he would like to get Italy back to um, unify the empire again because Rome, while it's not the seat of the empire, it still has the historical significance. If We can have control of it. It looks good for me as the emperor. I've reunified everyone. So he tries to take back Italy and he he gets parts of it and fails, does not unite um, all of Italy. And this is in large part to already the power that the church was gaining in the West. And for Justinian though, his goal was to be the first emperor to cause, to have uniformity, Christian uniformity throughout the empire um, in matters of orthodoxy, in matters of what we believed and what we subscribed to, but also in what the empire looked like. So he would embark on a huge uh, building campaign So he built the Church of Hagia Sophia in 537 in Constantinople. He also built, let's see, the Church of the Apostles in 550. That became the tombs of the emperors for centuries. He built the Basilica of St. John outside of Ephesus. And, um, And so what he's trying to do is have this great building program to show off, we are a Christian empire now. That's kind of his thing. He also was a great administrator. He saw it to the codification of the Roman law. He brought all the, the law that was kind of disjointed all together under one common book, if you will, which set the stage for how the empire would be ruled and governed for centuries to come. Um, as I mentioned, he tried to retake Italy, but could not take it all. Um, and so that's what's going on in the east. The emperor's trying to Coalesce and strengthen the empire, but strengthen and begin a new Christian empire. So remember, thousand-year so experiment in Christian building, Christian civilization. All right. So back to the West. In five ninety, Gregory the Great, he becomes the Pope of Rome. Um, <clears throat> he would make a huge impact on the authority of the Roman Church. He would basically write, have a whole bunch of writings to say you need to submit to the Church. Um, He also began to change the idea of grace received from Augustine. So let me talk about that a little bit. Um, Augustine said, you have to have grace to be saved. And so questions asked, where does this grace come from? How do you get it? How do you keep it? Gregory said, grace is received in baptism. So you have to have grace to be saved, and you get grace in baptism. Therefore, you must be baptized. Um, everyone gets grace in baptism, and then he asks, what are you going to do with that grace? Well, you need to appropriate it. You need to use it. And the appropriate use of grace is in constantly confessing your sin, constantly hoping by grace to lead a better life, constantly making use of confession and the sacraments of the church to be, to be progressing in the Christian life. You had to hold on to grace to seek forgiveness for your sins, um, this is a grace that is achieved through a measure of cooperation. It's never stable or secure. And so, this is how, okay, for, for, me, do you guys see what is the difference between Augustine's view and what Gregory is espousing?
1: We're to keep the grace. It's not a gift that's permanent, and it's a grace that you could lose if you don't measure your sins continually. Yeah.
0: And what is the practical Implication of that for believers.
1: Yes. Okay. There is not meaningful assurance. Right,
0: no assurance. So Gregory would begin to change his understanding of grace, how the church would understand it. Lenny?
1: It comes down to atonement, because basically everyone was left with having to atone for their own sins by virtue of all these actions prayers, doing the right thing, kind of like trying to stuff enough points in your bank, self atonement, that's the issue, as opposed to Christ being
0: that. Christ being all sufficient. And this is also where you start to begin to get that the church becomes the necessary means to uh, distribute grace through the sacraments. It's not fully developed here, but this is where it starts to begin, which is what the reformers would react against. Um, so, Gregory, he would um, kind of change his understanding of grace. He would um, have a strong impact in view of the power of the Roman church and its um, primacy over other churches. So, he wasn't, he kind of did some bad things, I would say, but it wasn't all bad. He led some, um, he launched um, huge missionary efforts. To convert the people of Britain and, and the Aryan tribes of Europe. So I mentioned last time the the Vandals, the barbarians, as they were called. They were mostly Aryan, and Gregory, recognizing that, wanted to tell them the real truth: that no, Christ is not a created being; he is God who saves you from your sins. Despite his different differing views of grace, he began an effort to convert Europe and begin a Christian civilization. And he also insisted, here we go, on the superiority of Rome all over all the other christian sees. So by sees I mean five major cities or areas where the church began in the early church these were Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, and then the newest Constantinople. Rome had always enjoyed a status of quote unquote first among equals because of its prestige and historical location. Over time though the bishops of Rome they would believe they had primacy over the entire church until Christ came back. Um, the bishops at Rome believed they stood as Peter's successor in apostolic succession because Peter had been the first bishop of Rome, and Jesus would build his church on his rock, a.k.a. Peter, the first pope, as eventually they would say later. Therefore, Rome was to lead the church and have authority all over all church matters. The church in the east at Constantinople would have none of that. They were willing to admit that Rome was a first among equals, but it was not above any other. Their reasoning was the emperor is here now. He's the leader. He was not in Rome, and Rome has no authority over anyone. They saw the bishops of Rome attempting to dominate the rest of Christianity, and any orthodox bishop, no matter what city they are in, was a true successor of Peter. The rock of Peter was not Peter himself, but rather it was Peter's faith. Rome would answer and say... Who is Constantinople to say anything? You guys are new. We've been here for thousands of years. Um, <clears throat> the empire was here. Um, Constantinople has no long standing history like we do. Furthermore, the church at Constantinople is ruled by an emperor. Rome didn't want any secular ruler ruling the church. The emperor, any emperor, was to submit to the authority of the pope in spiritual and temporal matters. All right, so. We start to see this struggle between East and West, between Pope and Emperor, for lack of a better term, and for simplicity's sake. Um, so Rome would say no emperor can submit, um, the emperor must submit to, to the Pope, must submit to the Church in Rome. And we see this happen in 800, when the Pope crowns Charlemagne as Emperor of the Roman, 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 Roman Empire. Charlemagne was not very happy about being crowned by the Pope because he didn't want to leave the impression that he had received the Empire from hands of the Pope. But that was exactly the the impression the Pope wanted to give. The Pope was already operating on the basis of a document known to history as the Donation of Constantine. So the Pope had this document. The document said um, that it came from Constantine himself and that Constantine in the early fourth century, says, I have this vast empire the Lord has given me, but it's too big for me to rule on my own, so I cede the lands in the West to the Church in Rome, thereby ceding the lands to the Pope. And under the the basis of the authority of this document, the Pope said, well, I have the authority to crown Charlemagne, the emperor in the West. So brief history, the, the, the West was fractured over time, and then the Franks eventually would come in over time and gain power. And consolidate power and they basically would start the Holy Roman Empire, which was kind of an empire in the West. They quote-unquote saw themselves under the Empire in the East because Charlemagne actually said, is it okay if I become Emperor in the West? He asked the Emperor in the East if this was okay and the Emperor East said, yeah it's okay because he was really dealing with the Muslim invasion, which I'll talk about next week, so he didn't really have time for the West. Though the point is though is that the pope actually crowns the emperor in the West, and therefore the pope says, "Well, I'm am t- higher on the food chain than you are." All right. So these are the tensions going on within um, the church. Um, <clears throat> back in the East, the ch- the church is ruled by the emperor. It's called Caesar pop uh, Caesaropapism. Any emperor was to submit to the pope in spiritual and temporal matters. So that's the view in the West. The pope crowned Charlemagne. Um, Going through there. Oh, and and the document actually um, was a fake. It was a fake document. And so, but the Pope didn't care because it tried to give him authority. But ironically, he had to get authority from Constantine in the east to be able to give authority to the emperor in the west. So anyways, basically there's power plays going on left and right between the ruling authorities and who has power. All right, I think I can do it. Getting close. All right, so. There is a slow divide between the East and the Western churches. This is all leading up towards a split, a formal split. The emperors were tied to the church in the East. The East spoke and wrote Greek. The East was more mystical and focused on piety and worship, and the East focused more on a cooperative view of salvation. So you've got, between the East and the West, you've got language barriers, you've got cultural barriers, and you have theological barriers. So up there is what the, what the East did. They spoke in Greek. They viewed theology in a certain way. They viewed the practice and outworking of the, theology in a certain way. And then the West had their own views. Um, the West spoke and wrote Latin. They focused more on theological issues that were more practical. This is mostly because um, the barbarian tribes are coming in. There's less stability in the West and so the churches, they don't really have time for deep speculative theology. they need to deal with practical issues on the ground. So their theology would be more practical and less mystical. Um, they emphasize grace and a, a God-alone view of salvation, mostly leaning towards Augustine, where the East would view um, uh, from other theologians would view uh, salvation as more cooperative in nature. The West, well not truly. in line with Augustine would still lean more towards Augustine. So you've got like this split here of how you think. And eventually, they cannot talk to each other for the most part. Um, Because they cannot talk to each other, when they try, they get frustrated, and then they don't want to talk to each other. Okay? So there are still relations between the East and the West, but over time, due to cultural, theological, and ecclesiastical differences, who has power, they would begin to drift. There's also one other big, huge controversy, which pretty much was almost the nail in the coffin, called the Filioque Controversy. So, keen observers of two weeks ago when I had the Nicene Creed, I had the Creed up there and I had, and the Son, in brackets. Um, so the Creed says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and the Son. And the Son was not in the original Nicene Creed, there's none in the Niceno-Constantinople Creed that was accepted by all the bishops who attended this ecumenical council, and the sun was added later by the West. And so, what do you think the East thought about that? The East didn't like it because the East said, "Who are you?" And the and and the Rome, the Pope said, "We we have the authority to add this." The East said, "Who are you to add a new?" phrase to a council that was attended by almost all of the church representatives in the whole world. And you go ahead and unilaterally add something to the creed without discussing it with us. Essentially, it was a power play by Rome, and the East did not appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> the West did say, well, the Pope has the authority to change the creed. So the theme here is The Western Church through the Pope is gaining power, and then they realize they have power, and now they're trying to even gain more. And now, not just only temporal power with political governments and things, but even power within the church, that now we have the authority to change councils and creeds. And the East didn't like it. So we got all this stuff going on in the background, and then in 1054, historians call this the Great Schism, where the East and the West would actually split. Let me read a quick account of what happened there. Uh, All right. In 1053, the Greek churches in southern Italy were required to to conform to Latin practices under threat of closure. So remember, we've got different types of worship styles. We've got different languages, right? And so in the West, they're telling the Greek churches over here, no, you need to become Latin now. In retaliation, Patriarch Michael... Serularius of Constantinople ordered the closure of all Latin churches in Constantinople. So, West wants to close the Eastern churches, and now the East closed the Western churches. Um, in 1054, the papal Legate, so the Pope had some representatives he sent to Constantinople for, for other matters, um, sent by Leo IX, traveled to Constantinople in order to deny Cerularius the title of ecumenical patriarch. And insist that he recognize the Pope's claim to be head of all the churches. So eventually, um, as Cyrilius, he would refuse to accept this demand, and so the legates from Rome they would excommunicate him. In response, Cyrilarius excommunicated the legates. According to one historian, even after 1054, friendly relations between East and West continued. The two parts of Christendom were not yet conscious of a great gulf of separation. However, the dispute remained of something of which ordinary Christians in the East were largely unaware. And so there's a tension here, and especially with historians, that this is the point where the East and West divide. However, there would be relations between the two. It's a common misunderstanding that the two sides excommunicated each other's churches, but they only excommunicated members of the church. However, I think it's a good point to have in history as a dividing line between the two um, churches because the East and West, that pretty much the heads, even though the West was, had representatives of the Pope, they were in the same room together and they couldn't come to an agreement on anything. And so historians say this is where the church split in 1054. So up until this time there was in history there's been considered one church. And now we technically you could say we have two churches in the east and the west. Um, and now the churches have become the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman churches. So a recap reasons for the split, Rome's claim to supremacy, there's a distinction of language, distinction in philosophy and theology, the filioque clause where the west added um, a clause to an ecumenical creed, and the East was like, how dare you, you can't do that, and the West says, yes, we can. And the big question is, who has final authority in church matters? And so we've got all this bickering going back and forth. And Rome would end and say, um, moving forward, would continue to assert its authority and gain more power. All right, so basically I'm setting the stage for what's to come next week. I did that really, really fast. But the main point is the East and the West were dividing for many reasons, and some of them weren't sinful. It was just how things developed in history. But their reactions to the things that were changing, so I mentioned transition, I think in some ways were sinful. So let me just close with one question What can we learn from what we've seen? How the two churches, Divided and split. What is something we can learn from that?
1: What, what it came down to was your last point, you had the authority to use for the West. Had they had their authority, in Scripture, I think they could have come to a better agreement.
0: Yeah, I think a couple things we can learn to actually, um, what Paul says, become all things to all people, try to really understand someone who has a different view. Perhaps there is a way to work things out. Um, also, I think we can also see on the other side that uh, God's going to do what he's going to do, and he's going to work in history. Um, it's, we look at the split as kind of a, a sad thing, but perhaps it was, it was better. And we could see that. We'll start to see that next week. Um, and then I think we can also learn that um, who has final authority? It should be the scriptures. And not a Pope or an Emperor or a delegate or even a council, because I think the filioque clause the 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 extra clause is correct, and so the council didn 't quite get it all right, although the manner in which it was added was incorrect it wasn 't done in the spirit of of brotherliness and um, accommodation to those who had gone before and actually debated this all in person. Anyways, so That was super duper fast Kind of dry. I know but it's setting the stage for next week Which we'll get a little more into and I'll have a lot more interaction next week So this was kind of just I needed to get information out to set the stage for next week so I Apologize for rushing but I did my best and I hope you learned something from this and I guys hope you are enjoying the class and if there's a ways I can improve and help you share, help you learn more about church history and share and provide resources, please let me know. So let me just quickly pray and get out of here. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this class. Uh, Please forgive me for rushing so fast, but I do pray that we learn that um, there was a lot of sin in the church, Lord, but uh, despite that, you still continue to build it, that we would all have a spirit of um, just coming together for your church and for your glory. Lord, we ask that you be with all of us and our families as a part here today. In Christ. name we pray. Amen.